lot of people, they see what we did and they're like, well, why didn't you just go the route of marijuana and why, why isn't there a dispensary that we can go buy mushrooms at? And I really think money can taint that whole, that whole system. Mass production is destruction, whereas community production for the community is sustainable and if you stick to that sort of model you can have a bountiful harvest that there will always be plenty of. This is about leaving them a world that's worth coming into. That's becoming less and less a reality for each subsequent generation right now as we destroy our planet, as uh, the idea of community moves to an entirely digital format and we don't speak to people face to face. Trust Earth. Welcome to Hallucination. Hi, welcome to Hallucination, a new podcast inspired by my album of the same name. A 16-track prog rock activist album that explores themes of tyranny, revolution, spirituality, love, etc. And now that I'm done with it, I wanted to channel it and have some insightful conversations with folks who are on the front lines of social and cultural changes in America. Conversations about what exactly? Partly about the ills and unequal things that hold humanity back from being its best. But also to add another flashlight to the group of humanity searching for better. I'm your host, Dax Martinez-Vargas. In the final track of my album, I explore the idea of a global hallucinogen day, being something that could get humanity on the same page and working together. A cheat code to increased global empathy. So I find the topics of conscious liberty and plant medicine legalization of great importance and believe that if they were legal globally and encouraged by our culture, our world would operate better and with more equality for all. And be way more interesting and exciting could all have fun on this ride. And while you may already know this, you may not know much about the process and organization that go into getting them legalized in your community. Think about it, when's the last time you got hallucinogens legalized in your community? Probably never. Probably because you think it's impossible. Well, my guest Michael Williams, the director of communications at Decrim Nature Ann Arbor, would say it's actually totally possible. And with the right mix of communication, community building, and strategy, there's a way forward for us all. Just look at the recent wins in Oregon State and Washington, D.C. Oregon's the first state to decriminalize all drugs, and Washington, D.C., which has legalized psilocybin. In this interview, Michael refers to these recent wins prior to them actually being wins. Now, decriminalizing substances is no walk in the park. It's going to take a bit of patience to present a no-nonsense argument to a city council, mayor, district attorney, that whole crew. And Michael goes through all of that, as well as talking about the significance of hallucinogens, entheogenic substances, and how big business and mass production can actually undermine something that should be pure and from the community itself. Some of the music on this episode comes from artist David Worth, W-I-R-T-H, aka Firefire Red Star Down at Bandcamp. Other music comes from my album Hallucination, as well as the B-sides and D-sides. Hallucination is available on Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, Bandcamp. Now we're going to let Michael take it away and tell us what's what. Oh, and by the way, Michael brought a little bit of nature with him. It's the wind. I did my best to remedy it, thinned out his EQ, added some nature sounds. Hopefully it's enough. Depends on how rock and roll you are. I promise smoother episodes in the future. My name's Mike Williams. Uh, I'm the communication director for Decrim Nature Ann Arbor. And uh, we were just the third city in the United States to decriminalize all entheogenic plants, animals, and fungi. Congratulations, Michael. That's a huge victory. Just for the listeners who haven't been keeping track, uh, who were the first two? Well, first we had uh, Denver pass their psilocybin initiative, which I did not include in that three because it's just psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, But immediately thereafter, Oakland, California, and Santa Cruz followed up with an initiative that was much more similar to ours in terms of decriminalizing all entheogenic substances that are naturally occurring. And for for the listeners who don't know what entheogenic substances mean, what are those? An entheogenic substance is a substance that connects you with the, the spiritual, creates a mystic experience. 
uh, engages the mysteries of life and brings about larger meaning. So naturally occurring entheogens. Uh, we felt, especially given the success of marijuana around the country, if we stuck to naturally occurring substances that have a history of thousands of years of use and didn't include more recent uh, substances which also have very spiritual pieces attached to them such as LSD and MDMA, ketamine. If, if we chose not to include those substances, we thought we had a better chance of opening the conversation. And I think now that the conversation is open, uh, you know, while we may not be ready in Ann Arbor, we're on the right path to have those larger conversations about other psychedelics and the larger failures of the drug war. I mean, from my own perspective, I don't think this is necessarily the take of everyone in Decrim Nature Ann Arbor, but I come to this program from a long history of drug policy reform, and the war on drugs, both in the United States and worldwide, has been a epic failure. Um, people, the problems that any substance creates are being exacerbated by the laws that are surrounding them. And so, obviously, I'm one more of the decrim all drugs and let's regulate the ones that carry the most risk and create the programs for the mental health and the reintegration into community. Uh, but I would have loved to have seen this include all psychedelic substances, uh, personally being a big fan of LSD. Is there any concern that with making a move forward with entheogenic that you might have resistance later on when you try to go the full nine yards and get all substances legalized? That maybe you get pushed back from the city council and whatnot who feel they've already allowed entheogenic substances to be legalized. That should that should cover all the sort of trauma healing medicine that a community requires. And then might view that any additional substances, especially the fact that they're not natural, that they just come with some sort of risk and price tag and headache that you know nobody in the community really wants to deal with. So, especially when we were first talking about this, everybody wants to talk about the 60s and the 70s, um, and mass unrest, and you know, uh, people going crazy. And that's, that's a lack of having the education and resources uh, to understand these substances and taking them in the wrong set and setting. And I, that's, a big, that's really where our next step lies right now is how do we create the container within our community to help the people that want to experience these substances uh, but don't have access or don't have the education and research behind it. Um, how do we teach people the importance of growing their own or gathering their own and the importance of gifting these substances to each other rather than, you know, marketing them for profit? Because a lot of people, they see what we did and they're like, well, why didn't you just go the route of marijuana and why, why isn't there a dispensary that we can go buy mushrooms at? And I really think money can taint that whole, uh, that whole system. But moving into other psychedelics, I do foresee that question being raised. I, I really think just if you see the benefit of all these substances and you can show that these other psychedelic substances are equally beneficial, but then look at the track record in terms of criminal law of entheogens versus chemical or synthesized psychedelics and entheogens, I think you'll start to see the need to actually decriminalize those as well. I, I think a fine example is within the city of Ann Arbor since 2017, there's only been six cases where 
the investigation or arrest of a person using psilocybin mushrooms has ever occurred and the chief of police did not even think in terms of Aya, Ibogaine, Cactus, etc. that there was any. Uh, whereas if I don't have the numbers, but for LSD and MDMA, that's a quantum leap in terms of the number of arrests happening. And if you realize that people are seeking these substances for the exact same purposes, recognize that not everybody's the same, and each one of these substances is in fact different, and therefore work different substances work for different people, well, we can really draw to light the need to expand this. What was the secret to your success? Communication. A, when we first brought this idea to city council, and that was probably six, seven months after we'd formed, we'd been working on language that already existed in Oakland and in Santa Cruz and tried to make something that was going to work for our community. Uh, but even after we first started talking to council members, it was going to lose by a steep margin. In our favor, COVID hit. Uh, I, not many people get to say that, but it gave us seven, eight months of time to just really nail out the education to these council members and to the mayor of Ann Arbor. And I think what that speaks to is any initiative needs to not be concerned with rushing to a win, but doing it right making time to create the spaces to hold these conversations and not just holding them once, but being persistent. Uh, one of the things we did in Ann Arbor throughout this uh, COVID pandemic was we sent out every week another letter from a major medical center or psych, um, group of psychiatrists or psychologists, uh, experienced practitioners, uh, soldiers with PTSD, and on top of that letter that we would send out every week, we'd also post a new testimonial video from a member of the Ann Arbor community on how psychedelics have benefited their lives. So I, I really think going slow and not rushing, like, hey, we've got this initiative ready, let's introduce it and hope for the best, Show, show your council members, show your mayor, show the city attorney and the chief of police and public safety, community health officers, your initiative, and then have a conversation. Don't rush to have it introduced and win, but have the conversation, be persistent, and I think once the education's there, it's pretty much no-nonsense argument for anybody. And that's how we ended up unanimous. And so for everyone you've been working with, you've been meeting along your journey with this, do you find that the general attitude and shared vision is that a world where psilocybin, entheogenic substances, that world is more like a utopia, or is that just the first step towards getting to that utopia? So I am a philosophy minor. Uh, I myself have some problems with the idea of utopia even being possible. I believe in balance. For every bit of progress we make, somebody's going to find a way to use that negatively. And, you know, the light will always balance with the dark. Uh, so I'm not sure what a utopia with psychedelics looks like, and I certainly don't believe them to be a band-aid that can cure all, fix all. However, for myself, for a lot of those in my community, they've done exactly that. They've addressed more than just our mental health problems, but uh, helped us embrace love, life, uh, nature, each other, uh, built stronger communities. And I really, I think that's what we're working towards, is stronger communities, uh, better ways to address mental health, better ways to address problematic substance use, and life betterment. Um, you don't have to have a problem to use these substances to benefit. You can take one of these substances and improve an already seemingly perfect life. So uh, I think 
Utopia is a little far out there for us, but, uh... What does your gut say about when Americans will have complete access to all drugs and have complete sovereignty over what they put into their bodies? I believe, and DNA too believes, the whole decrim nature believes, uh, that we have an inalienable right to choose what we put into our bodies and what we don't. And that goes into how you diet or the drug of choice, whether that be TV, sugar, ayahuasca, or, you know, other drugs. And I think that that's a big piece of this is the freedom to choose. But everybody uh, within the drug community, it's a big thing to talk about harm reduction. And what we're trying to shift the conversation to within decrim across the country is safe and responsible use. Yes, we recognize these substances carry with them a harm. But stating that that harm is inherent and not, you know, something that can be worked around with the education piece, teaching people how to use responsibly, as well as what a safe setting, what a responsible setting, what a safe mindset, what a responsible mindset looks like, uh, I think is quintessential to what we're doing, and that's not control, that's education. I, I think, like you said, gun, gun control versus gun safety, uh, how we frame these things is ultimately how they're going to be received. And if we want to talk about reducing risk and harm reduction, I think we're still focusing on the harm. If we're talking about safe and responsible use, well then we're also incorporating not only the reduction of the harms that do exist, but the building of community, the building of these containers that you know, address a more holistic issue in terms of, you know, end game, when do we, when do we actually have all these substances done, when is the United States ready to go, because realistically, if we're going to ask a global drug policy question, you're going to be looking to the United States, because most of the UN drug policies, most other countries' drug policies followed suit of the United States on creating drug laws and receive heavy pressure and sanctions if they don't choose to enforce drug laws. So uh, for the United States, I definitely feel we're a long way off, but we're making massive amounts of progress really quickly. Uh, in terms of like the opioid epidemic, uh, harm reduction tactics are stepping up massively nationwide syringe access and naloxone access treating it as a public health concern rather than criminal is becoming a bigger and bigger trend all across North America uh, in terms of psychedelics I think we're well on our way um, we have over a hundred cities nationwide trying to decrim entheogens currently uh, in Michigan alone, we have over 10 cities that have been following up with us uh, in Ann Arbor, seeing how they can get this going in their city. How much does Big Pharma factor into your strategy, timeline, obstacle course, support? So for us, a movement was really getting in front of the pharmaceutical movement with these substances. Uh, the sacred plants definitely have some use and potential within a laboratory setting, but that's for an absolute worst case scenario. Overall, I think the average person is going to benefit a lot more using it in their own space or in nature, and if we let the pharmaceutical uh, psychedelic rush get in front of us, uh, we're not going to see this actual decriminalization where you can use it, grow it, share it with friends right. and family and grow the community. It's hard to grow community in a laboratory setting and 
that's one of our major tenets. I see within the lab setting they want to go straight to the root of the problem they're trying to cure. And as I mentioned, that's not always the case with entheogenic and psychedelic substances, that there's something that needs to be cured. Sometimes it's perspective and a new lens on life, but the threat, I don't want to call it a threat because the work going on pharmaceutically is very fantastic, but it, it is happening also. Uh, psyched, uh, Compass Pathways is being traded publicly on NASDAQ right now. Uh, USONA, I believe, is being traded now. Um, and these are companies working with psychedelic medicines, and usually in their isolated forms, but if we let a lot of gatekeeping continue and control this movement, the traditional relationship with these substances that has been around for thousands of years continues to stay criminal. And that's, you know, that relationship to nature, that building community is a big piece of what we're doing. So what do you tell anyone who's trying to get to where you have, but they feel like they're in a community of a lot of naysayers and just negative folks not open to the idea of entheogenic substances or hallucinogens? Again, within Ann Arbor, we had a distinct advantage because we already had Michigan Psychedelic Society meeting regularly within the Ann Arbor city limits. So we already had a community ready to move forward, but it's, I'm located more out in the country and uh, well away from Ann Arbor, and it's a lot easier to feel isolated like that. I think one of the things entheogenic substances teach us is that we're not alone. And really embracing that on your journey, really embracing the connectivity, but then when you're back in your day-to-day, in between experiences, remembering that our our circles, our close circles, are only the tiniest fragment of the larger community that is geographically around us. And I think most people would be surprised to find they are very far from alone. It's just there's not a container like Michigan Psychedelic Society that's existent yet. And so one of the things we've done within Michigan since our win in Ann Arbor is we created the Decrim Nature Michigan uh, page and email. And so what we're trying to do is all of the tons of people around the state and in other states that are reaching out, we really love what you did, how we do this in our community, or I want to come to Ann Arbor to experience this because I don't think we can do this in our area. Um, we're trying to funnel them all over to our larger container, which is actually connecting a surprising amount of people. We're getting isolated requests from the same areas of people that don't know each other, and so now we've got the container to let's connect these people, let's host an event, and, you know, build that community, help them establish that. And, you know, where I live, you drive down the street, it's a Trump flag, a Trump flag, a Trump flag, a Trump flag, a Trump flag. And this is not some place that I feel comfortable openly speaking, yet because people have been noticing, oh, hey, he's doing this in Ann Arbor, people from all sorts of walks of life are you know, reaching out, and turns out there's a really big community out here where I'm isolated with all the Amish, and connection to nature, and a bountiful harvest of the earth, and I really think that's one of the reasons why we didn't want to, you know, corporatize this movement, is, well, down the road, I do foresee a place, you know, 30 years down the road, where Sure, there's probably a story you can go buy mushrooms at. But recognizing that mass production is destruction, whereas 
community production for the community is sustainable and if you stick to that sort of model you can have a bountiful harvest that there will always be plenty of but that gets into a whole environmental ethos uh, and fighting back against a whole different monster just a reminder that some of the music you're hearing from this episode comes to us from firefire red star down at Bandcamp, where you can hear more of his music like this atmospheric gem right here what's this all about this is interesting i feel like i'm in a lava lamp so what's next what is y'all's focus now well we've kind of got a dual focus from our and arbor team one is working with the michigan psychedelic society uh community mental health uh, dance safe and harm reduction organizations within the community to create a container for safe and responsible use. That doesn't mean a space where you can go use, but the educational resources, a list of therapists that are willing to work with you, lobbying at the state level to ensure that those therapists, state licensures aren't in jeopardy. Um, that's one piece of the puzzle. The other piece is, what does the rest of our state look like? The Decrim Nature USA movement already is very well established and working with municipalities across the country. But within the state of Michigan, as with any state, the politics are going to be very different than, say, California or Oregon or Colorado. So we're working, like I said, with Decrim Nature MI to start connecting those other communities. We have 10 other communities in our state that are very interested with multiple people in moving forward. So we're helping them to draft their own resolutions, helping them to start establishing relationships with their council and in their community, figure out who the stakeholders are, and have those conversations but we also want to be looking at the bigger picture within Decrim Nature Michigan of how do we go about this at the state level without having to spend three quarters of a million dollars with major investors who almost always end up acting as gatekeepers to a movement and end up getting priority for access, uh, how do we avoid having to go that voter initiative route and make sure something sensible can be passed legislatively? Um, and I think that is by popcorning communities across the state, showing the benefits, continuing that education, and being on the front end of helping draft that legislation. Do you sometimes just kind of think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if just randomly one of these big companies like Starbucks put out like a psilocybin latte or Domino's were to put out a sort of hallucinogenic pizza, you know, which obviously could get them in a lot of trouble, but if they just said, listen, we'll take the hit, this is for a good cause, or they're just saying, no, no, we're just marketing, like we're going to do it, we're not actually going to come on we're crazy I mean is it, do you ever kind of think god that would really that would really speed things along obviously the approach is this popcorn community approach you were talking about it's hard to pinpoint any one thing any of those things would be awesome uh, I think a notable move has been uh, Zuckerberg just came out and made a very large donation to initiative 110 in Oregon, uh, I think the largest donation so far, uh, that's a major statement. And I do think it will propel the decriminalize all drugs movement. Uh, while that isn't just focused on entheogens, I do think that's one way to move the discussion forward at a more rapid pace. But that does bring back into question this idea of gatekeepers and what's at stake for them. If they're putting three quarters of a million dollars into an initiative to make sure it passes, what are they getting out of it? And this has always been the thing with money and politics. But I think on a smaller scale with Decrim Nature, 
Anna Arbor is a really unique case because when Oakland and Santa Cruz did it, uh, that's what happened. It was their community, their city did this within their city. And that's, you know, it led to Decrim Nature USA, but it didn't go in waves beyond that. With Ann Arbor, not even a week after we won our city council unanimously, the incoming Washtenaw County prosecutor, Ann Arbor being located in Washtenaw County, uh, stated not only does he support what happened in Ann Arbor, but that as prosecutor, he does not plan to prosecute any cases around these substances countywide. So I think as other communities have these conversations within their city, to be having these conversations at the county level to make sure while maybe the county seat does it officially to actively make it policy of the county because they're putting out the same information to the prosecutors and the judges and I think that's going to be a big step for us is if we can do that in one more county along with five more cities happening in Michigan, I think going to our governor and our uh, attorney general to say, hey, even until legislature passes something, we're not going to prosecute that is a very real possibility. And I think the work of this incoming prosecutor, Ellie Savitt, is uh, really speaking to the potency of these organic movements. Um, but I think something else that would help when we do talk about the money in politics, because quite frankly, any big move, whether it be Nike or whoever, it, there's going to be money involved. I think seeing the cannabis community step in and offer some of the large amounts of money they're pulling in and say, hey, this is something else we can do. And we've learned from our mistakes with cannabis. Um, I know within Michigan, caregivers are getting screwed constantly uh, with the way the laws are written. Uh, the law was written to have equity amongst communities and access for, you know, more rural and more urban communities to get access to the industry and instead it's very controlled by the same money interest and there's still a lot of money in the community that can't be legally accounted for right now and I think if every one of them just made a $500 cash donation to the movement we could tell Nike when they come to us with money to take a walk. I think, especially with Decrim Nature, our model is bottom-up, of the people, by the people, and community. Grow, gather, give. And so why does the legalization of these substances mean so much to you? Why have you made this your focus? I have a history of problematic substance use, uh, mostly methamphetamines, a uh, little bit of opiates, a little bit of benzos. Uh, definitely had a run with crack cocaine and other substances uh, a list a mile long and it was always chasing a high chasing a high it, trying to get back to that place that never really happened so I kept opening upping my doses and pushing harder combining substances and putting myself in a really precarious position that was unhealthy for my mind, uh, very detached from reality, very separating from the people who loved me and the people I loved. And a single psilocybin session in my early 20s totally turned that all around. Uh, one single use and I'm like, I, I don't need to do all this to be happy. Uh, I control my happiness. Love comes from within. Love is something we create and love is something that is 
struck me about the psilocybin experience and then later subsequent entheogenic and psychedelic experiences was I didn't rush back in. Uh, I took it and even though the access was the same as it was before I took it, I knew where it was at, I could get it, I could take it tomorrow. I didn't feel the need to rush in. And life was thriving all around me and all I had to do was embrace it. And I didn't go back in for about four or five more months. That's something that with other substances I'd never experienced and I think really speaks to the idea that just because somebody takes a drug, automatically they're going to develop this problematic relationships with that substance. But also looking at how it addressed the problematic relationships with substances I was having and reframed my relationship with some of those substances uh, was so incredibly powerful. And then, you know, I've got a history of legal running, uh, legal issues. Revolving, uh, revolving around my use as well, that I just, I see a better way of handling this, and already having so many aspects of my life stigmatize me or alienate me from participating in certain things, access to college funding, uh, access to certain jobs, I recognize the need, especially as a white person who is empowered to speak up and not automatically looked at as a criminal for driving down the road, such as, you know, a person of color maybe, to really start speaking out about this and get involved with my community. So when I did speak on these substances within my community on these issues, they actually listened because I'd been participating in other aspects of community. As I've really explored uh, what drug policy reform looks like and elevating my own voice, there is still the larger concern of racial disparities and, you know, other communities that maybe need more access, uh, need access more than I do, their ability to speak up about it and so really starting to create spaces to empower those voices and kind of step back from the microphone myself and hear somebody else talk. For sure, that's a great point. So after your first psilocybin experience, how did you feel when you would think of going back to your previous drugs? I can't say after one use that I never went back and used again. Um, but it became a lot less of a priority in my life. My body was still begging for it because I created that physical relationship, but my mind was pulling away from it. My spirit was pulling away from it. During that first experience, there was a moment where I took a little box full of substances and I flushed it all down the toilet. I'm like, I don't need you. And you know, about three weeks later, I was like, ah, oh, shit, I need you. Um, but when I went back and uh, took that next hit, I also, it didn't feel nearly as useful as it had previously. Uh, and so while there was more left in the bag, I didn't rush right back to it either. All of a sudden I had something that looked more like responsible use. And I think this is something people forget, but when we look at the drug using community, we're generally only seeing a sliver of people actually using whatever drug we're looking at. And that includes the substances that do carry larger risks with them. I think that speaks to the fact that there is such a thing as safe and responsible use, uh, but that doesn't happen in a criminalized world where it's dominated for profit by black markets with no regulations, uh, where there is added incentive to 
cut your product because your cut is cheaper and more potent and therefore carries more risk. I wanted to get your thoughts on this. The Global Hallucinogen Day. If everybody took hallucinogens, whatever their, you know, medical advisor recommended to them for their condition, their situation, it seems to me that the following day, week, month, year would change in a very positive way, it would be very significant. What are your thoughts on a global hallucinogen day? I actually have a fear of that. Um, I, I immediately go to what does a person whose entire life has been the military industrial complex or enforcement of the prison industrial complex uh, what does an experience for them look like? Or someone who's had to slaughter animals in one of those horror show slaughterhouses. Exactly. Anybody that's uh, or you know somebody that with any sort of trauma uh, I do definitely think there's containers needed and not everybody should run out and try these substances right away. Well, the benefits for traumatic experiences and traumatic life patterns exist. Uh, I think those are the situations where a container is most needed, whether it be in a ceremony setting or with your uh, therapist or in a lab, uh, some people aren't going to feel comfortable taking this unless it's under the supervision of a doctor the first time. And so I'm certainly not opposed to a lab setting. I do believe that down the road, when some of the stigma has been erased from these substances, which isn't going to be a quick thing, that maybe a worldwide hallucinogen day could be done. But one of the things that happens, especially with folks ex- that have experienced a lot of trauma or are coming from a very depressed or anxious place, is, you know, confronting that issue. And that's not always pretty in the moment. Uh, challenging experiences do happen. And that's why in the case of, you know, addressing PTSD and so on, some sort of space holder having somebody there to you know just check in on you every 10 minutes but not necessarily guide the experience or having you know somebody that can fully control your environment and make sure you're not in danger Uh, it's very important for those people and if everybody's on these substances at the same time it's going to be a lot harder to catch all of those people where they need to be caught the most. Okay, so maybe it's a week and, and people trade off as each other's sitters so they can they can have their experience but also have someone to watch over them. I love that. I love that. <laughs> like, let's take the people who aren't experiencing trauma that are, you know, used to this medicine and give them days one and two. Let's take the lightly experienced and give them uh, day three, the never experienced day four, and then day five and six, send it back to the most experienced, like, come down from having catch all that trauma. And, uh, yeah, I I, I totally think there's a way to work around that. (laughs) I like the week. Okay, I like that. Global Hallucinogen Week. I think that sounds great. I think it sounds productive. And I think the last week of the year, that's what I'm going to nominate. That way when you wake up on New Year's Day, it's it's really a new you. But you do bring an interesting point. November 11th, 2011, so 11-11-11, uh, I participated in a worldwide DMT experiment where obviously not everybody in the world smoked DMT. Uh, A lot of people did. Thousands of people around the world uh, participated. And while I I can certainly say I did not hear of any negative experiences from that, and not everybody got the same thing out of it, several people 
felt they shared the experience and they could quantify that because in different forums at the same time whether you know they were members of the Shroomery talking about it or Mycotopia or the DMT Nexus or any one of the hundreds of forums there are on these substances they were all talking about the exact same thing and I do think there's a potential for connectivity here that even the most experienced user hasn't tapped into. Uh, they have some, you know, fleeting idea of in the moment of the experience that everything is connected, but I think in that experience, like several of us saw it firsthand and could talk about it in terms of like very we were in the same spaces we were listening to the same alien languages and bringing back the same information and so if this collective consciousness is like a more evolved human wi-fi and if we can arrive to this higher level of frequency to where we're all in sync you know there's no egos and we're just all working together and we can we can make a pyramid. You know, when I watch this documentary, the Dr. Anthony West in Egypt, or in the pyramids, there's talk about how the Egyptians were basically memorizing all these different steps that they, they would have to do for when they would go to these other spiritual levels. So once they're in that state, they could actually navigate it correctly. But the idea that they could even agree on what these steps were in this sort of intangible, otherworldly place, do you feel like something like that is at play? And it's just a matter of us all learning how to navigate the jungle gym so we can harness whatever great energy or positivity or next phase to the human journey that, that exists in this realm. I think those are some excellent parallels you're drawing there. Um, the idea of an internet without the internet, this hive mind. Um, I think psilocybin specifically provides us with a physical example in the natural world of what this looks like. Uh, how mushroom mycelium works. A, and Paul Samets explains it as nature's internet. And uh, if you look into that research and its ability for mycelial masses to communicate nutrient information and between two different types of trees or two of the same trees in different settings connected by this mycelial network and the ability to then, once that communication is complete, help move those nutrients back and forth across the network to the others in their community that need this nutrient uh, or this information or this water or whatever, I think becomes a really, you know, the step between the internet and the hive mind. Now we have an example in the natural world that's not quite esoteric that we can grab onto. But then you take a mushroom and you tap into this internet. All of a sudden, I, the memories of thousands of years of mushrooms are one with your own memory and your own experience and you're able to draw from that. And while it doesn't necessarily last that far beyond the experience, I do think it shows our potential to draw on that and our ability to transmit information without need of, you know, circuitry or whatever. But in small group experiences, uh, I would say with like maybe five MEO, you're not near as likely to do it in a group. You're maybe one person at a time with your facilitator. But with psilocybin, it's often taken in a small group of like-minded individuals and what I find is if five people come into the circle and they've each got their own mushrooms that they grew or they purchased 
five people have five very different experiences and there's some sort of disconnect between them. But if five people eat the same mushrooms from the same grow together, dosed the same at the same time, all of a sudden they experience a shared hallucination, a shared, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't, it's a shared experience. I don't uh, know how else to put it, but that sense of community really comes into it. And so understanding the tools we're using and understanding, you know, one mushroom is not the same as the next, but if the line, the lineage of the mushroom is all the same leading up to the experience and everybody doses kind of the same and is doing this together with intention, you can tap into this hive mind. I can talk about it all day, but I'm not going to convince anybody with my words that such a foreign concept actually is real. Uh, that's like trying to convince an astrologer that, uh, you know, the different constellations from our perspective in space are relevant. Uh, I, while I may have some relationship with astronomy, uh, the average astrophysicist is like, well, you're only seeing it from one space. It's not a bull over there. It's not a water bearer from over, you know, this perspective. So uh, it's really hard to use our language as it exists to expound these ideas. Yet I do think it's something that's very able to be experienced. And... Uh, that's where you really sell people. And so sometimes, especially when like talking to a city council, I won't I won't get right into this hive mind aspect. I'd rather talk about the healing potential, the the toxic profile of these substances and that it's virtually nil. Like taken properly, these substances carry very little risk. Uh, and I think that was another reason for sticking with the plant and fungi-based entheogens was, you know, we could say matter-of-factly the low risk that's carried. And, I mean, it's not to neglect the idea that all chemicals have potential chemical interactions. That's not true of just drugs. That's true of our entire world. So, yes. If you take an SSRI or an SSNI and then you take ibogaine or ayahuasca with an MAOI in it, there are going to be chemical interactions that are not favorable and these are a piece of that education. But, I mean, the same thing happens with salt and water. Uh, salt ceases to exist in the form it was and breaks apart and ionizes in, in water. And uh, you see it everywhere in the world. Uh, it's based chemistry knowledge on that everything has chemical reactants. Some are more likely to react than others because of their stability, but uh, people are so quick to point to the risks with ibogaine especially. And I'm really quick to jump to the idea that everything in the world, a piece of wood, a rock, uh, are all subject to chemical change and put in a certain environment and that's a risk that everything carries and we just need to educate on that and not call it a risk of the substance itself. So as we wrap up here, Michael, are there any, are there any words you have either for younger generations, older generations, same age generations? I think in terms of the older generations, this is about creating a space for the future generations. This is about leaving them a world that's worth coming into. And that's becoming less and less a reality for each subsequent generation right now as we destroy our planet, as uh, the idea of community moves to an entirely digital format, and we don't speak to people face to face. 
Cause it's really about, you know, reframing the community or the earth for uh, younger generations. But for the younger generations, I'd say this is about maximizing your potential. This is about living the life you love, loving the life you live, loving the people around you, uh, receiving love, and creating a space that's not only viable for future generations, but takes all of these amazing technological breakthroughs that we've been gifted and turns them into something amazing. Uh, there's a lot of potential for any tool. Tools, whether it be a hammer, uh, you know, you can build a house or you can smack somebody over the head. The internet, I mean, we can connect uh, across massive distances almost instantaneously and move around ideas and grow at exponential rates or we can control and I think I think recognizing the maximum potential benefit and embracing that maximum potential benefit is what these substances help us to do um, and it's not just technology it's every step of our life every interaction with nature with other people uh, with ourselves uh, learning to practice self-love and I, I just really hope uh, the future generations recognize how much potential has been placed in front of them and how much responsibility that is to the whole world and themselves. Uh, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I think, like you said, uh, getting this information out there in any way we can and decrim nature is not the only way. It's a way politically to do small localities, but the work you're doing. Education across larger spaces, getting the experts in one place so people have a resource to go to. And the agents help us find our niche, doing what we love and building the community we love. And it takes all of us, each doing those individual acts to build the whole system that's going to work and hopefully achieve that utopia. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing the story of your team's success with decriminalizing entheogenic substances, all of them in Ann Arbor, Michigan, as well as educating listeners who may be interested in making similar progress in their communities, I hope. Your perspective's been valuable. Your story's been helpful. I, I truly f look forward to chatting with you more as you and your team keep making progress, keep making every community popcorn up and change the world. Absolutely. Thank you, Dax, for having me. And uh, anytime you want to chat more, this is my work, and I'm always willing to chat about it. Thanks for everything you're doing, too. Uh, like I said, important piece of the puzzle. Well, there you go. Thanks again to Michael Williams for the interview, and thanks so much for everyone that took a listen to this episode. I hope you learned something, and we'll have all entheogenic substances legal in your community come this time next year. You can do it. Shrooms legal by Christmas 2021. Say it. Manifest it. Change the world. Thank you to composer David Worth once again for sharing his music on this episode. You can find his music at Bandcamp under his artist name, Firefire Red Star Down. All other music can be found on the album Hallucination, available at hallucination.live. Hallucination, the album, was produced by David Perlick Molinari, Colin Thibodeau, and Jason Richard. And if you need anything, email me at info at hallucination.live. Until next time, I'm Dax Martinez-Vargas. Let's flip these communities. Start down. Other music by the host of the artist.